0: Hey Mockingbirds, Dave here. Before we jump into the episode, a couple of quick announcements. As you're about to hear, this is our last episode before the summer hiatus. And while we're gone, a little bit longer this time, really to accommodate Sarah's sabbatical, we will be back in in the middle of August. But while we're gone, a few ways to stay connected. First of all, the brand new issue of the Mockingbird magazine, the success and failure issue of our beautiful print magazine is out now. and It's available for you to order. I'll put the link in uh, the show notes. But if you've never checked out our magazine, it it really embodies uh, and captures the ethos of what we try to do here on the Mockingcast. I highly commend it to you. Sarah wrote something for this issue, as did I. Do take a look at that. We also have a couple of new podcast uh, projects or special podcast projects coming to you in early June. So watch our website for that. It's the second season of The Brothers Saul podcast, which I do with my brothers, and as well as a new series called The Terrible Parables, uh, not to be missed, uh, and something to keep an eye out for. We'll also put, if you're on our digital mailing list, which another link will be provided in the show notes, you will find out about that ASAP but lastly, this is the time of year when we usually uh, ask for your support. Uh, Mockingbird is a nonprofit, and we rely on donors and listeners like yourself uh, to keep this uh, bird in the air. So if the Mockingcast in particular has been a source of sustenance and encouragement for you uh, this past year, we ask uh, we really could use your help to keep it going. Um, was, uh, you can become a monthly donor. You can give one-time gifts. You can ask your church to support us, but we really could use your help. In fact, we need it. So there'll be a link in the show notes to where you can do that. Um, but thank you. Thank you for, to all of those who do support us, and thank you just simply for listening and for allowing us to uh, uh, continue this work that we love so much. All right, on to the episode. Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. I am so happy to see the two of you uh, for what I, I guess is our, our last episode before the summer hiatus. Sarah goes <laughs> on sabbatical and yes. the rest of us uh, just uh, go on. Uh, we'll be jealous. We'll be working and jealous. <laughs> we'll be jealous, but I hope, you know, I still think the summer, at least for me, I'm really intentionally trying to yes. shift downshift as to use your the language you would understand, RJ. I appreciate all things automotive, yes. <laughs> How are you guys doing? What's, what's the latest?
1: I mean, coming off the conference high, I thought that was really amazing. RJ, we really missed you, seriously. Um, Thank you. Yeah, but it was, like, really good. And then this past week, I went to Nacogdoches, Texas, and preached at Westminster Presbyterian Church for my friend Kelly Pitcock. I know. It was really awesome. Um, Such a sweet congregation. Such a beautiful building. It was really special. And now my husband's like, please don't leave again. So...
2: (laughs) <laughs> Never leave again. I'm helpless without you.
1: Never leave again,
0: <laughs> Rutger. You've uh, you've almost made it to the end of the school year. Not quite.
2: Almost. I am really ready for summer. I yeah. am. I just. I, I'm noticing the kind of post Easter, and then we had um, the bishop came for confirmation the week after Easter, which was lovely. You know, we had like 15 confirmands. Um But I'm realizing it's been a very busy. Couple months and an insane couple years, mm. and I think I'm looking forward to an actual kind of summer this summer. And like you said, you're slowing things down a little bit, taking a bit of a deep breath. Um, so yeah, I'm am ready for that.
0: I noticed I noticed today on social media that Brene Brown is taking a full sabbatical this summer and has decided to like make sh- make all of her staff take the time off too, mm. uh, just recognizing how much. And I I, I you know she's she's got the the ways and means to do it i suppose but it's still um it, it, to recognize that this has not been a normal couple of years and that people yes. are spent yes uh, yeah
1: i mean i also think it's like the combination of it hasn't been a normal couple of years and like it also hasn't been a normal couple of couple of years in like the scope of humanity like we've had plagues before but we haven't had social media at the same time
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's a big ass. dueling
2: plagues yeah exactly <laughs> one of our own making <laughs> Yeah,
0: exactly. well after the last episode i think i'm gonna we're trying to i want to try to obey a moratorium on social media talk Got let's it. see let's see if we can do it i don't know you love
1: social it's media. very
0: hard not to blame
2: reprimanded sarah
0: well there's a lot uh, to lay at its feet let's face it there is um I'm i personally so grateful for that conference. It was just a delight. Yeah. The sun was shining. There wasn't a, a a bad presentation. I mean, it was just like everything. Although there was a major snafu with Tom Holland not being able to enter the country, by somehow oh, no. by the grace of yeah. God, uh, the technology worked, which never works in a it church was like that. Beautiful, like, ever works, and it was it was incredible. It was beautiful, and folks. You know the the um. Audio recordings are all up on the Talking Bird. It's a different podcast feed, but they're uh, all—I think they're almost all up there, if not all of them. And uh, run, don't walk to hear what Sarah had to say. She she told a story she told on here before, but in such an expansive and pastoral and helpful way. I'm not going to give away anything more than that, except for I'll never think about Halliburton the same again. And Simeon Zoll, I think, gave a talk for the ages about oh, technologies of the heart and theories of change in, in ministry and life. And I think, uh, and, and yeah, Tom Holland came through, and Helen Peterson was great. Todd did a fantastic job. All the breakouts were fa- fabulous. Um, Aaron Zimmerman made us all fall in love with Florence Welsh. Um, yeah. It was just, it was really joyful.
1: Yeah. I mean, I just appreciated the lack of Navy Blazers.
0: Ah, uh, as you say there was there was that that quotient was down this year. It was were down. significantly. were they did
2: transition to corduroy? No,
1: there's a lot of t-shirts. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, I was like uh it was uh it was pretty casual, which I Not really quite as enjoyed as, as someone as who used to be very stressed passed. about what to wear to the Mockingbird conference, I can say. Yes. You could shop in a sweatsuit now, so do it.
0: Well, a huge shout out to all those who helped. Um, I'm talking, thinking about Megan Ritchie and uh, Jacob and Melina and yeah. uh, Katie uh, McNulty and Pixie and the Scout. Just uh, angels as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. It just feels like a family reunion.
1: It's like a family reunion where like every year it gets bigger. Does that make mm. sense? Like I, like more people get invited in. Like, you know, it's just such a beautiful, open. Well, tons that of we all-
0: new folks this year.
1: Yeah, there really were. It was incredible. It was just a gift to be there.
0: And it's nice to see this, the work of, that we do on this ridiculous podcast, too, that it actually resonates. It's um,
1: ludicrous, RJ. People wild. listen to this. I mean,
2: hmm. <laughs> 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 I'll be even more careful what I say. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, and you, d- and you just do you, Sarah Connor.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> we've got a few things to discuss today. And the first is the word. Adulting. Adulting. Uh, In 2000 and I think it was 2013, Kelly Williams Brown wrote a book called Adulting, How to Become a Grown-Up in 468 Easy-ish Steps. Now this is a little profile done on Kelly Williams Brown uh, by Delia Kai on, on Vanity Fair. And uh, this is what she writes. She says, if you ever heard of the word adulting at any point inside the last decade, it's because of this book. You might not feel like a grown-up, the thinking goes, but given the correct tips and tricks, you could pull off an effective cosplay. Well, in 2017, uh, Williams Brown wrote Gracious, an Etiquette Guide. And then she wrote a third book last summer to answer uh, uh, called Easy Crafts for the Insane, a mostly funny memoir of mental illness and making things.
1: That's such a great title.
0: She, despite the title, it's far from another handbooky sequel for now 30 somethings because Williams Brown's life post adulting blew up in almost every imaginable way. Easy Crafts documents these 700 bad days, including but not limited to one failed marriage, three broken limbs over three separate instances, the end of several close friendships, and a harrowing experience with depression that resulted in a suicide attempt. She does so with honesty and darkly funny crafting how-tos in a kind of ironic throwback to her first books. For any adulting reader who might have put her on an uh, all-knowing self-help guru pedestal, or anyone who still believes that following or prescribing a specific set of steps to reach adulthood is a kind of guaranteed home-free safety zone, is to miss the point entirely. No matter how clean your tub is, your life can still fall apart along the way. This is what she says in this interview. She says, I tried to be extremely clear in adulting that I was writing it as a non-functional person who knew there were people out there who did a good job on their laundry and had houses that weren't chaos. I wanted to treat it like a reporting project and go and find out how from them. But somehow, people interpret it as, I am now a lifestyle expert, which is the opposite of what I was. And it's hard because you can't just constantly say, no, I'm a grubby baby. She says, I love giving people advice. This is one of my favorite things to do. What I didn't like was people thinking that, therefore, I had it all together. And then with any evidence that I had a misstep or when there was something painful or unhappy in my life or even my house was a mess, they're like, didn't you write a book on this? Well, Brian uh, Gerrell was writing about this for Mockingbird in the the last week's Weekender. And he just says, it's, it's, it's ironic that Williams Brown's experience is the real adulting. Like adulting is really just managing one disaster after the next. What do you guys, have you heard this term adulting? Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does feel that way a lot. I mean, it feels like one, uh, going from one catastrophe to another for sure. Um, I think that's why it's good to have people to share it with. Cause I think that makes it a little bit more fun. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm just thinking about like two nights ago, I I always check on the kids before I go to bed, and I went up to Annie's room, and it was just that really just distinct smell of vomit, and <laughs> she just has that gift where, and it's a it's a blessing where she can just throw up in bed and go to sleep on it. You know what I mean? Like she just throws up and then just curls. It's warm, right? So, oh
2: so like, and she and she wasn't drunk. Just no, to be clear. she's she- totally
1: sober. Um. <laughs> And then, like, I have to go downstairs and get my husband and be like, and it's like 1045, right? Like, we're ready for bed. And it's like, we need to give her a bath. And um, Welcome to adulthood. So, Welcome. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's what it – I don't know. that That is kind of what it feels like. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I do love that she's able to – um I don't want to say, like, sort of make fun of herself, but I, I think for a lot of people who, and maybe her because her intention was never, right, to be this lifestyle expert, but for a lot of people who are lifestyle experts, when everything falls apart, they're not willing to really talk about it in this way. Mm. Um, so I really admire the fact that she's like, yeah, none of, like, my whole life fell apart, and here's a book, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. And and here's a little few crafts also that you can do while you're Yeah. <laughs> I like also that.
1: Timeline's really relatable, you know? Like I think about when she wrote this book and like by now all of our lives have fallen apart, you know? Like yeah. that makes sense that tracks, you know, like mental health, divorce, all these things. Like, yeah.
0: RJ, what do you think when you think about adulting, or this even this this kind of uh, conundrum of being an influencer who has to live up to uh, what they've written, or just someone in ministry who has to live up to what they say, uh, even if they they're saying they they can't live up to what
2: they're saying. That's why I talk standard, about this so. is why I s- talk about sit and brokenness yeah, all the time wait. because that I can do. <laughs> that I can do. Uh, <laughs> I remember growing up thinking that. Adults knew what they were doing, mm. and that the world operated by a certain set of rules, that it was my job to kind of figure out what those rules were. And then I, and then you suddenly realize at some point, like, no, none of that is true. That everyone's a scared kid, basically. Nobody knows what they're doing, and um, there really are no rules. And you just kind of uh, make it up as you, as you go along. So I remember having that epiphany. I also remember the moment distinctly when I could no longer— do everything in my life well, mm. right? That I couldn't be like, and I remember saying this I can't be like an A husband and an A employee and an A friend and an A father. I can't. I just, that's impossible, right? And so something's got to give. And I guess, you know, I, I could be like an A employee, but that means that I'm going to be, um, you know, a C husband and a C <laughs> friend and a C father. So you got to choose. And I think I just got more comfortable with being, like, a B-plus at everything Mm -hmm. because that... And then also, when you have little children, in my experience, you basically have no friends for, like, two or three years. Right? You're All of your... Like, forget it. Like, you have no friends at all. There's no time for anything but work and small children and maybe your marriage if you're lucky. Um, But then your kids go to school, thank God, and a little more space is created. But um, you have to... You know, there's only so many hours in the day and only so much time... And so part of, I do think, being an adult is managing that all that ambiguity of just you're kind of doing the best you can at a bunch of different things. Mm. Um, but also recognizing that if you put too much of yourself into your career, for example, that's going to have pretty dire consequences for your relationships. Mm. So, but let me say, you also just can't stop working. Right? right, you actually gotta like you gotta make the money. You do, you, know? so, you do. So I, I have a friend whose father was a very fun father who could never hold down a job, um, and that also was, and that also was a problem. You know, yeah. Um So anyway, sorry, sorry to interrupt.
1: No, no, no. Um, that's fine. So yeah, in all the Enneagram stuff I've done, the the phrase that is meant for threes that I always come back to, and I'm sure I've said it before, but is um, you have to ask yourself who are you actually responsible for because we feel like oh well we're responsible for everything being great in our job we're responsible for everything you know and and really it's actually a really short list of what you're actually responsible for um and it also makes me think sort of a more to the point version of this is melina smith has said to me recently like well who's gonna who's actually coming to your funeral um and it quickly clarifies right like that who 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 is it in your life coming to your funeral Who's coming to your funeral?
0: Um, Words to live by? The, 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 right? What do they call it? The eulogy virtues or eulogy uh, versus resume? Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, I th- I think of that a lot in terms of like ministry work because the reality is some parishioners might come to your funeral, but I've been to priest funerals. There's sometimes not a lot of people there because they don't have any friends and then parishioners don't come. So like, oh, I don't know. You know, like I think it's important to remember
2: those are good questions, Sarah, because there's definitely this little voice in my mind that's like, A, I'm responsible for everyone, obviously, no. and two, obviously, everyone's going to come to my funeral also. Oh, <laughs> okay. <So,
1: laughs>
2: which is very sinful and not at all true, but there's definitely a voice inside of me that's saying that right that's now. That's amazing.
1: So continue.
0: I was talking yes. to someone last night who just left uh, a very high-profile position in, in ministry, a totally different denomination, and... I asked him. I was sort of like, "So, is what's what's life like on the other side?" And he said, "Yeah, it's like, is it nice not to have uh, a church to care for?" And he said, "You know, honestly, it it is like that's mm-hmm. to, to know that I'm caring for just the people in my family mm-hmm. is uh, an or you know, and the truth is, you know, as what we really believe is that God's taking care of people yeah. and that we're just sort of there to be the, you know... But he needs lots of help. He needs he lots evil. of help. Like, so I mean, so I well,
1: it's a 75-25 relationship and we're the People are out there okay, suffering, Dave. Dave.
0: <laughs> what is it that, that, that this past weekend uh, the, in Revelation, it's the people in uh, the heavens uh, saying... The great
1: ordeal. They're saying...
0: Uh, the great ordeal. Yeah, but they're also saying, they're saying salvation that, belongs yeah. to our God. Salvation belongs to our God. And you want to want to... They're not saying salvation belongs to... Uh, God and also us a little bit, you know. Like <laughs> foundation belongs to <laughs> God, and you know, a, a little bit of a collaboration. You know, it, it was a um, we're
1: co-creators. We're
0: co-creators, and and yes, the great ordeal life is.
2: I, it's the best. Life is that's it's the the like great ordeal. who are those
1: people over there? And it's like, oh, those people. Those people are the ones who've been through the great ordeal. Like, Aka whoa.
2: life. Aka, AKA everyone. Aka you're
1: a person in the world. Aka
2: you're a human being, and <laughs> well, you exactly. Well, I basically think
0: Earth. that's adulting is kind of another euphemism. For the Great Ordeal. I was Absolutely. having yeah. lunch the with Valley someone. of the
2: Shadow of Death.
0: You know, I was having lunch with someone yesterday, and I was walking out to my car, and these people hailed me down and they said, um, "Is that your car right there?" Uh, I just they watched. Hailed you down? No, they, they okay? hailed me down. They oh, said, They said, "We just watched uh, a lady, a young lady, just completely sideswipe your car and drive off," and. Um, I was actually with Jane Grizzle. uh, uh, She was there too. And this young woman who's clearly just completing her first year at university, she she had taken off because she got scared and then she came back because she knew that she'd been photographed and she came back. And she was so... She's so frightened and she's like, and, and, and I could tell like she wasn't really taking in much information because um, I think it was she was driving a friend's car and she really,
1: oh, no. she really smacked the hell
0: out of my car. And she, she said, oh my God, adulting's so hard right now. Adulting's so hard right now. And I said, I said, you know, have you ever gotten in an accident? Like no one was hurt. This isn't the end of the world. Yeah. We'll get through it. It's just a huge hassle. We have to yeah. exchange insurance information. And welcome to adult life. It and she's, and she's like, adulting so hard. Aww. And... Um, it was, it was sweet, but at the same time, I was just like, this is just kind of what goes along with being a human, unfortunately, is uh, having to exchange insurance information with strangers in parking lots. And,
2: uh, or early 21st century America, one of those two things. Either, either yeah. That could be, that could be. Yes. Um,
0: and I was like, you know, I'm going to have to call the police. She's like, the police, what? And I said, well, maybe you should read this book, Adulting, that I just read about yesterday.
1: Yeah, um, you're like, they're going to arrest you, it's fine they're <laughs> you're
2: going to jail
1: you're going to jail but just overnight you've so. got a
2: little yeah.
0: like you know you've got toiletries in your car right it's
1: fine right
2: <laughs> well i told you i helped my oldest son do his taxes for the first time oh. we sat down to that for two hours you know and that the first time you do that it's like so intimidating and then you realize it's actually like not really a thing at all you know? yeah. i mean it is but it isn't it
0: is funny rj i, I do I, I open um one of the chapters i know the chapter of uh of, i opened low anthropology act with with talking someone asking me is like i i must have been missing the day that they handed out the manual you know that tells you how to yes. do taxes yes. and get insurance and you know how to raise children that don't hate you because i've yes. had that conversation so many times and i was like yeah they're like i must have been sick that day yeah. and and i was like oh that manual yeah i've got one in my car um i'm sorry maybe i'll let you borrow it maybe not Um, in fact and that's what I think uh, that's where this next article comes in it's by Brad East this was forwarded to us by Aaron Zimmerman it's a post called Church for Normies, there's going to be some theology here, uh, so just uh, bear with me. Uh, he, he introduces by saying, in his book, Voss, a very critical introduction, Nicholas Healy raises an objection with Stanley Hauer Voss's ecclesiology. That means Stanley Hauerwas is, for you I don't know, he's a very famous theologian who's at Duke, and he's known for being kind of cranky and funny, and but very radical. Uh, But what this uh, person, Healy, argues that Hauervoss's rhetoric uh, is, um, it presents... Which which
2: you can do at seminary, but continue. (laughs) Yeah,
0: okay. uh, Presents uh, the reader with a church fit only for faithful Christians, that is for heroes and saints, for super disciples, for the extraordinarily obedient, the successful, the satisfactory. By contrast, Healy argues that the church ought to be a home and a haven for, quote, unsatisfactory Christians, and that our doctrine of the church ought to reflect that meaning people who have struggled with adulting. Um, that phrase, unsatisfactory Christians, has stuck with me ever since I first read it. It's often what I have in mind when I refer to normy Christians. Ordinary believers, most of whose days are filled with the mundane tasks of remaining decent while doing what's necessary to survive in a hard world. Working a boring job, feeding the kids, getting enough sleep, paying the bills, not getting too much into debt, occasionally seeing friends, fixing household or familial problems, maybe taking an annual vacation. The radical church, as exemplified by sort of intentional communities and people all moving into sort of poor neighborhoods together, that Hauerwas describes is not a church for normies. It's not a community for unsatisfactory Christians. It's for Christians who have their you-know-what together, Christians who are both able and willing, given their background, education, financial status, temperament, moral and intellectual aptitude, and personal desire to enter the monastic life, you only here as lay persons. It's certainly possible to make a case based on the Gospels and the teaching of Christ that the church exists solely for such Christians since discipleship to Christ is costly. But I believe this to be a profound misunderstanding, not least because the rest of the New Testament exists. Just read St. Paul. He'll disabuse you rather quickly of the notion that the church consists of satisfactory Christians. It turns out the church is nothing but unsatisfactory Christians. The church has to make room for the unsatisfactory The just getting by, the I'm barely paying the bills, the it took all I had to show up this morning, the I'm doing my best, the just give me a break, folks, the Holly Ivy Christians who begrudgingly show up twice a year, the Kishijiros and Simon Peters and Doubting Thomases, the addicts who relapse, the gamblers in debt, the foreclosed on and laid off, the perennially fired and out of work, the ex-cons and adulterers and fathers of five kids by three different moms. Is the church not for such as these? Truly I say to you, he quotes Jesus, the tax collectors and the harlots will go into the kingdom of God before you. Does this mean our churches should expect less of their members? Does it mean our churches should restructure their common life? Does it mean churches should function to permit and even welcome the straggler, the good-for-nothing, the failed disciple, the the I'm-just-here-to-take-the-Eucharist-and-run type? Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying.
2: (laughs) What more need be said, right? If you, I just... The only way to survive in the church, pastor and pastoral ministry specifically, is to have exceedingly low expectations of people, you know, and just love them as they are, and not expect—I mean, can I be honest with you? I'm shocked anyone shows up on Sunday morning at all. Like, why would you not sleep in, go to brunch, read the New York Times, do anything, um, but come to church, and then these people show up, and it's lovely and wonderful, and then they also, like— Give money and do stuff. It's crazy, Mm. Um, but I'm certainly not expecting it. I mean, just what a huge recipe for disappointment, resentment, and bitterness. Um, so yeah, like the radical, the quote-unquote radical church ends up showing, like, manifesting from time to time. Like, praise God, but it's a work of the Spirit, Mm. and it's not something that we can make happen by browbeating people into being a certain way. Just preach the gospel, and then maybe that takes hold in people's lives, and something happens, and you just give thanks for it, but yeah.
0: I remember reading some of these theologians that were painting this very beautiful picture, but very demanding picture of what it looks like to be a Christian in the world, and in in Hauerwas' case, that usually involves some very um, pacifistic... And countercultural decisions around uh, money and schooling and provision and, and, and kind of moving almost into a commune type, type situation. He's not, it's not a it's not an Benedict option thing, but I had some friends who, uh, who were involved in the youth ministry that RJ and I worked for who went off and sort of tried to do it. They tried to live like first-century Christians, and in a kind of almost pseudo-Amish way. And you're something very yes. convicting about it. You're like, well, I guess I'm just going back to my apartment to listen to music and eat pizza, you know. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, 20 years later, I the all most of that stuff flamed out and flamed out pretty, pretty dramatically. And it can happen in, I think. Uh, in a, all sorts of different wrappers, but this idea that church—you know—to use the phrasing from the previous article—there's a sense it's like, well, once I become an adult, then I'll sort of and I have children, then par- oh, yeah. I'll go. Maybe I'll go back to church then, because it's part of sort of a, a well-rounded life. And you want to say, um, actually, it sort of works the other way. Like, church is where you come when you've failed the adulting course, and over time, perhaps through this community and hearing God's grace and receiving it. You might, there might be some steps made, but this idea that we're sort of, any church that doesn't look like an something in Acts is a f- total failed church, I think it's like, it's true, like every church is a failed church, and yet yes. it's the guilt league of the guilty. It's the uh, federation yes. of failures. Like it's, hey, we got room for one more, come on in.
2: Well, it's that thing also that's going around, been going around for a while, you know, that we're not supposed to go to church, we're supposed to be the church, And it's like... a church is more than a building, RJ. Exactly, exactly. Or what did you say, Dave, once that, uh, you know, you're talking about someone who's pretty hardcore, and they're like, they think that the problem with Christianity is that no one's doing it, right? No one's being it. And it's like, well, yeah, duh. Like, there's only one Jesus, and this is not about being something or doing something. It's about uh, proclaiming something. It's about holding on to something. It's about a promise. It's about something we... The whole content of Christianity is trusting in what someone else has done because you can't, and you don't, and you won't. Yeah, um, and so it's it's salvation by grace through faith, you know, and not salvation by being or doing or adulting or uh, you know how radical can you be or and yet, like I said, sometimes those things do happen, and it's amazing and beautiful, but they happen as as a sort of spontaneous outgrowth of this message of grace. And not by people sort of buckling down and getting it done, because when it's the latter thing, it just it it's it's not it's ugly. It's not right, you know. Yeah, Sarah, what are your thoughts? Yeah,
1: I mean, I don't want to talk badly about Mormons because I'm sure we've got like two that <laughs> listen. But um, we started watching Under the Banner of Heaven Ooh. last night. I've read it. So I haven't. it. Is it good? It's really good. Um, And honestly, I will say, like, one of the reasons I found it incredibly compelling, and I had read about this, is that Andrew Garfield, who plays the sort of protagonistly detective in this Mormon community, is so – oh, gosh. He's so beautifully faithful. Um, As a father, as a husband, as someone in the community, it's just – I mean, it's so beautiful. The, the way he like takes care of his in, clearly, in the show or yeah, as in a the person, show. Okay. Yes, like the way he takes care of his like clearly dealing with mental problems mother. Like it's so beautiful, um, but it's very uh, Mormon in the way that like these are the rules. This is how we live in community, and and you know it's very quickly apparent that if anyone ask questions has doubts about whether not even doubts about God necessarily, but doubts about the rules. Mm -hmm. Um, and we can get into like the sexism and stuff, but it's really just like, if you have doubts about the rules, you don't belong in the community. And so it's sad because it is this community that thinks of itself as being really welcoming and gracious. And, I don't know. It's like when we begin to make the rules as human beings, that's when we actually lose the, I mean, I think we'll talk about this article maybe today, but the winsomeness Mm. of Christianity, right? And the room for the Holy Spirit in Christianity. Um, So it makes me think of that. But I mean, to RJ's point, it really makes me think of the, the Tom Holland talk. And when he showed the photograph, which uh, Josh, my husband, said was in his book, because he's read the book, but is um, the photograph of the the ankle bone mm. with the nail driven through it from, you know, what, the early, around the time of Christ, right? Like, this was found. And just this... Um, this desire to somehow want to have enough rules that we can mandate our lives to be like Christ, and in that process, we stop believing in the power of Jesus. mm you know, because um, yeah. I, when I saw that image on this, sc- like, I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't like, I'm going to throw up in the pew. Did you, you know? know what it like, was
0: at first? Because it took me him telling us what it was. Before. Oh,
1: no, it took me to him telling. Yeah. me. I was like, what is that? Because I thought, because bones, as they age, like everything is sort of looks like metal. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, it's just all metal. And it's like, oh, no, that is actually, and that is how Jesus was crucified, right? It would have been through the ankle
0: bone. It's from the side.
1: And, yeah. And it just is like. Well, no thank you, please. Like, please do that on my behalf. But it's, it, it really, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we want to make the rules right up until somebody wants to put a, a nail on our ankle.
2: Mm. <laughs> use them against other you guys people. Are just, just don't, like don't...
1: eyebrows up, like nodding. Just
2: don't use them against me, please.
0: Yeah, I think it's uh, a very... I mean what he's he's saying is just that the, the the church can handle regular actual people and um yeah, and again, yeah. what we're always saying on this podcast is that life is hard you, you yeah. if you get to church at all, you're sort of working on walking on broken glass, and if you finally get there and they don't have a there's not a message of hope but a message of sort of a, 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 a religious version of kind of a do more, try harder, be more intense, be the church. I think that's a real missed opportunity. And I think I just
1: think every preacher We're here to save the world. I just think every preacher in America should have to do I don't even know if they do this program anymore. They didn't do it where I went to high school because we all had actual babies, so they didn't have to do it. But the program where like you they give you a pretend baby, that was a joke because everyone got pregnant in my <laughs> high school. Um but they give you a pretend baby. Either it's like a little computer or it's like a sack of flour, depending on like what school you're at. But to take care of for a weekend, and I wish that every preacher in America on his own, and it's mostly men, so on his own would have like a baby that he would have to like do all the things with to get to church like six weeks in a row (laughs) and then be able to preach. Like I think more effective than clinical pastoral education would be like you have to keep a baby alive, you know, and then go to church because – Every time I see, you know, I'm no longer in the young mom category. Every time I see a young mom walk in, and conversely, every time I see, like, an adult daughter with her adult mother who's in her 90s come in, Mm -hmm. I think what a remarkable feat it was for you all to get to church this morning. Yes. So...
0: Yes. Wow. I mean, I also, by the way, I'm always thinking of RJ's words that I, I quote in the book too, RJ, that when, when, when I asked you how you were doing in, in Houston years ago and you said, you know, life's gotten a lot easier since I realized that everyone is basically insane. Like, <laughs> <laughs> or, or ministry Min- ministry included. has gotten, gotten a lot easier since I realized that basically everyone is insane, myself included. That's awesome. And uh, then you all of a sudden love people and you're not uh, hating them. Um, yeah. Yes. That simple. Yes. Unless they never age, like R.J. Heyman. Like R.J. Uh, well, let's Kennedy talk. Kennedy let's Hayman. move from uh, self improvement or the lack thereof to dun 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 dun. dun. A neuroscientist prepares for oh. death. Sarah, you sent us this one. Big surprise. Yeah. Um, just yeah. kidding. It's. Uh, <laughs> Have you been thinking about death, Sarah? It's
1: my genre.
2: <laughs> Deal
0: with it. <laughs> This is David Linden wrote this in uh, The Atlantic. Uh, this is a neuroscientist who got terminal heart cancer. He's about five years to live. And he says, what, it, what lessons my terminal heart cancer taught me about the mind? I may be dying, but I'm still a science nerd. And so I think about what preparing for death has taught me about the human mind. The first thing, which is obvious to most people but had to be brought home forcefully for me, is that it is possible, even easy, to occupy two seemingly contradictory mental states at the same time. I'm simultaneously furious at my terminal cancer and deeply grateful for all that life has given me. This runs counter to an old idea in neuroscience that we occupy one mental state at a time. We are either curious or fearful. We either fight or we flee, based on some overall modulation of the nervous system. But our human brains are more nuanced than that, and so we can easily inhabit multiple complex, even contradictory cognitive and emotional states. And he goes on about some other things, but if he gets to the end where he says, the final insight of my situation is more subtle, but it's also the most important. Although I can prepare for death in all sorts of practical ways, getting my financial affairs in order, updating my will, writing reference letters for my employees, I cannot imagine the totality of my death or the world without me in it, in any deep or meaningful way. My mind skitters across the surface of my impending death without truly engaging. I don't think this is a personal failing, rather it's a simple result of having a human brain." He says that the field of neuroscience has changed significantly in the 43 years since I joined it. Now we know that rather than merely reacting to the external world, the brain spends much of its time and energy actively making predictions about the future, mostly the next few moments. Will that baseball flying through the air hit my head? Am I likely to become hungry soon? Is that approaching stranger, a friend, or a foe? These predictions are deeply rooted, automatic, and subconscious. They can't be turned off through mere force of will. And because our brains are organized to predict the near future, it presupposes that there will, in fact, be a near future. In this way, our brains are hardwired to prevent us from imagining the totality of death. I would contend that this basic cognitive limitation is not reserved for those of us who are preparing for imminent death, but is rather is a widespread glitch that has profound implications for the cross-cultural practice of religious thought. Nearly every religion has a concept of the afterlife— Why are afterlife and reincarnation stories found all over the world? Well, for the same reason we can't truly imagine our own deaths, because our brains are built on the faulty premise that there will always be that next moment to predict. Indeed, much religious thought takes the form of a bargain. Follow these rules in life and you will be rewarded in the afterlife, or with a favorable form of reincarnation, or by melding with the divine. What would the world's religions be like if our brains were not organized to imagine that consciousness endures? And how would this have changed our human cultures? While I ponder these questions, I am also mulling my own situation. I am not a person of faith, but as I prepare for death, I have a renewed respect for the persistent and broad appeal of afterlife reincarnation stories and their ultimately neurological, neurobiological roots. I'm not sure whether in the end faith and afterlife or reincarnation stories is a feature or a bug of human cognition, but if it's a bug, it's one for which I have sympathy.
1: I loved this. So I heard an interview with this gentleman and just immediately locked into it and was really fascinated, you know, by this. They were saying, like, well, how are you coping with this? So the interviewer asked him, and he said, well, if, you know, what he says in the article, like, I'm super nerdy about it. And I thought, oh, this is so interesting. Like, and what are the layers underneath that? You know, um, a little bit, because that feels very sort of self-protective and maybe, like, not really dealing with what's happening. And so it was just interesting to listen to him kind of slowly unpack this. What was fascinating to me was um, – in the interview, he didn't quite go there in the way that he does in this piece. And what I loved about the end of this, when he talks about the afterlife, is that he he both says it is this glitch, which I think is such a great word. And so I just I'm I'm endlessly fascinated by neuroscience. Had I been better at math, I would probably would have gone into it. Right. Um, that, that we are always future looking and then he, but he ends by saying, I mean, it's almost, I think it may be the last sentence has his wife's name in it. Like, he's like I hope I see her again, like, but wouldn't it be wonderful if I could see her again? And I, I think this, um, I don't know. I wonder if sort of, we all have a, uh, you know, he calls it a glitch and maybe I call it longing or maybe it's like a longing glitch, you know? And like, maybe, maybe, um, Perhaps he's wrong, you know, and there and there is this beautiful space for that. And I need it. I need space for that Mm -hmm. um, for us to talk about, like, why do we have this longing and what do we think it'll be like and do we find comfort in it? Um, You know, I did the tent talks with Tablet Magazine and, you know, I got to spend this time with uh, this rabbi talking about loss I'm sorry if I've talked about this one here before. I can't remember. It was so powerful for me. This is why I keep talking about it. But I remember we were talking about the afterlife, and she says, you know, Jews, we don't talk about the afterlife. We certainly don't try to comfort people with it when they've lost someone. That is not a thing we say. And she said, um, you know, faith has its limitations. And it was, um, it's that weird thing of, like, when... When you're given a lot of grace, when people don't say, well, you have to believe this, that you're actually able to believe it. Mm. Like it took her saying that to me and it took me reading this to be like, oh, but I actually do find a lot of comfort in this idea of the afterlife. And it actually does make me feel more at peace with death Mm. because of the afterlife. And I just found it really fascinating, this neuroscientist, after all this sort of like Sort of re- lightly, gently refuting the idea of heaven or an afterlife at the end is like, gosh, but I really hope it's
2: true. Yeah. Rutger? Uh, I was just thinking about all the people, time I saw on the people who were dying. Yeah. Um, and most of them, because of my line of work, have been people um, of faith who who really trusted Jesus and— you know, as much as you could say knew where they were going, like knew where they were going. Yeah. Um, And it was hard, but there was also something really good about it. Um, And there was a level of peace and acceptance and even maybe kind of joy Mm -hmm. in it all. Um, And then also I spent some time with people who and not not as many, a lot fewer, um, who don't believe, um, and who were really profoundly troubled and scared at the prospect of their own death, um, and angry. And it was just a different experience. Which is such uh, a like I remember don't that want from to talk the hospital.
1: About that. Huh?
2: People don't want to talk about that, but there is no. a difference in
0: unfortunately. It's a
1: huge. Um, the hospital was uh, that was always a profound. It was like you'd walk into the room of someone who was dying, who was Christian, and it was a completely different field than if you walked in the room, especially if someone who it's like not, not just not Christian, but like had no faith. Um, it's such. I mean, I was talking to a friend the other day whose mom. She's a friend of my age, and her mom's had like a ton of plastic surgery. And she's like, oh, you know, like, I guess it's just a thing we do and, you know, whatever. And I was like, it just seems like a lot of money to spend. And then, like, and then, like, it all falls apart. She's like, well, but, like, later you, like, you just fix, like, you know, you get it again. And I was like, no, but I mean, like, like, it all ends. It's like a lot of money to spend on something that's going to die, though, right? You know, <laughs> like, and it's, I mean, I think we do live in this weird place especially when we when we don't have faith Mm. and sometimes when we do I mean there are definitely Christians that are scared when they die but I don't know RJ do you feel like I mean it it makes me I mean sure my parents aside I'm I feel like I'm less afraid of death because I've been with so many dying people in ministry like do you have that I sense? don't know.
2: I'd like to think I am, and I also don't know what it would be like if I actually was dying. If yeah, I actually like that's got true. It's hard to pancreatic know, right? cancer tomorrow or something, yeah. and I knew I yeah, had six yeah, yeah. months to live. Totally. I will say, it also made me think of—I often talk about my Thursday morning men's Bible study, which I just love so much. And last week, we, we decided we're going to spend a few weeks looking at biblical stories of healing from throughout the, the Bible, because we're just interested in that. And so I asked them if they had any experiences with that, them or, the, or their friends, and they had some really amazing stories about some pretty miraculous healings. But one of them, uh, who's gone to our church for like over 40 years, said he remembered there was a woman in our church who was there every week, very faithful— but she was kind of a miserable person. Mm. And then she got this uh, terminal illness and they prayed for her to be healed, like just really prayed for her to be healed and delivered. And he said, you know, she wasn't healed physically, but he said those last six months of her life, she was a transformed person. Mm. She was more joyful, more peaceful, that there was something about having her, her death in front of her where she became somehow more lovely and was able to let go of whatever it was that had been weighing her down for all of those years. And so, and he said, We all, what we do believe as Christians is that we will be healed eventually, one way or another. But the healing she experienced, at least in this life, was not a, a physical healing, but it really was a spiritual and emotional healing. And it was pretty profound. So I think there's something to that. Mm, that's awesome. To that, too. That's right? beautiful.
0: I mean, a I, I, the, the, the couple things spring to mind. First of all, it's worth noting that even this very sophisticated neuroscientist um throws up that caricature of religion being about a bargain of like if you follow these rules you'll get to heaven. Oh yeah. And you're I sort of like, really that. man? I was like like all is right, that buddy. uh okay, that that's not uh, any religion. That's not one I practice at all. Right. Um right. but that's just such a default uh caricature and that's a little disappointing. However, I did think that the emotional um honesty of him. It's, it's remember when, when Tim Kreider at our, came and spoke at our conference and he went through this whole thing about how he was an atheist and Nietzsche was right about this, that, and the other. And then at the very end, he said, but when I was talking to my little niece and she was asking me, uh, you know, who I am, I, uh, looked at her and for a moment I wanted to say, you are a child of God. And oh. it was the, the, there's a deeper truth. And, uh, I mean, he's, he's interested in, um, in science, in terms of like the you know plastic matter and synapses in the brain and stuff like that, I I just think there's a deeper truth, um, and that these emotional what he calls glitches, and I think it's a great word for it because it kind of shouldn't yeah. exist. Yeah. And for a neuroscientist, usually who are very into kind of evolutionary adaptation, um, they always uh, have a have to find a way to explain it away rather than perhaps seeing it as a feature, um, right? And and something that is makes us unique or whatever.
1: Or, like, that everyone has it, so isn't that interesting? You isn't, know, versus, like, everyone has it, and here's why they're all wrong. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay, all right, that's a place we could go. So, like, there's yes
0: thankfully some so. motivated reasoning there. You know, that's, yeah, that's what yeah, it yeah, sounds like. There's, yeah, there's motivated yeah. reasoning on my end. There's motivated reasoning. Yes. Um, but the, um, the, what takes guts is for him to say, and yet, I, I in, the, in these moments, I actually recognize the hint of something that I didn't understand before. That uh, and I thought that took humility, and that's why that's why I wanted to talk about this piece. I also thought, by the way, Sarah, there was a remarkable thing I think in the New York Times last week about the rise of the two hundred thousand dollar facelift. And they write they interview some woman who is like
1: doll hairs, ladies. They're sort of
0: like, why did you, uh, why why are you getting this? And she's like, well, I'm very wealthy, and I have two Rolls Royces and three a yacht, and I'm still horribly depressed. (laughs) <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, I guess that's honest. You it's know, very honest. That's very honest. You, know, if you got the money. Maybe this will work. Maybe yeah. this will work. Yeah. Um, you know it's cheaper. Well, now we've talked Let's about it. <laughs> This episode, this season, this season of The Mockingcast brought to you. Yeah. Um, we've talked about viewing the world through the eyes of the dying. Let's talk about viewing it through the eyes of an eight-year-old. This is by Joey Goodall, who I had the pleasure of meeting in New York City, who's been writing for us. He's out in uh, Minneapolis. Wonderful Joey wrote uh, this for Mockingbird. He says this, he says, we've all seen the bumper sticker that says, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Paying attention, in this case, means paying attention to social media and the 24-hour news cycle. The slogan implies that there is something inherently moral about paying attention to those things which result in our necessary and righteous anger. Now, I'm not going to argue that there aren't things worth being angry about. However, what we pay attention to needs balance. And then he goes, In a recent episode of Krista Tippett's On Being, children's author Kate DiCamillo gives us one alternative. To occasionally pay attention to the world the way children do. DiCamillo often speaks of how the eight-year-old in her is easy to access, right at the surface, and how it is that eight-year-old who helps guide her through her stories. She goes on to say that paying attention to the world from that point of view can help us experience a feeling of wonder and amazement. This is DiCamillo writing. If you walk through a neighborhood with a kid or a toddler, it's just like, wait, everything is fascinating. And I don't want to let that go because that's a great gift. I had a friend in elementary school, Kathy Lord, and I just loved her. She would sit at the back of the classroom and she would ask to sharpen her pencil like every three minutes. Because what she wanted to do was to look at what everybody was doing. I think about her when I sit down to write. I think, be like Kathy Lord on the way to the pencil sharpener. I mean, everything that everybody was doing was fascinating to her. And that is the way to be in the world. You let your guard down that way if you're just curious and filled with wonder. Tippett then asked DeMillo to reconcile living in wonder with, quote, living in a world in a lot of reasonable despair. As DeCamillo's books are written with a sense of awe, coupled with a clear-eyed realism about how complicated, difficult, and often impossible and devastating life can be. DeCamillo says that synthesizing, quote, the terror with the wonder and the joy grounds and comforts her. Joey then goes on to talk about how children's books were very comforting to him when his own life was falling apart. He says, in the fall of 2008, I brought my then five-year-old daughter to a reading DiCamillo was giving to coincide with the release of uh, a book called Louisiana's Way Home. After the reading, there was a lo- signing line, and I snapped a few photos of my daughter with DiCamillo. It was a fitting cap to that particular time of struggle, the writer whose books helped me get through, smiling alongside the little girl I had to get through at four. Louisiana's Way Home ends with Louisiana writing to her grandmother who raised her up to age 12 before abandoning her. Saying this, I have respected your wishes. I have not come searching for you, but I've crossed the Florida-Georgia state line many, many times since we last spoke, and I look for you every time I cross over. I know that you will not be there, but I look anyway, and I dream about you. In my dream, you are standing in front of the vending machine from the good night sleep tight, and you are smiling at me using all of your teeth. You say, select anything you want, darling. Provisions have been made. Provisions have been made. Joey writes this, he says, this is a picture of God's providence. When our lives feel like they're falling apart and things are so dark, we can't even see a tunnel ahead of us, much less a light at the end of one. Provisions have still been made. God used children's books to help me get through, but I didn't realize that until well after the fact. And yet, synthesizing the terror with the wonder and the joy, that sounds a lot like the Christian faith to me. It's not that beautiful.
1: That's so isn't good. That beautiful? I mean I <laughs> it's I mean I gosh.
0: Do you like those Kate Camillo books, Sarah?
1: Yes. Because of yeah. when Dixie. Yeah,
0: Mercy yeah. Watson.
1: Oh Such a hit. Yes. Um I hate to like jump off of this and then talk about another writer, but I'm gonna do it. Um Molly Shannon's new book, um, which is uh Hello Molly. Uh-huh. Is so wonderful in a really similar way, and and I I just I cannot commend it enough. Um, you know, Molly Shannon lost her mom, her baby sister, and her cousin um, in a car accident uh, when she was four years old, and her dad was driving the car, and her dad went on on his own to raise Molly Shannon and her sister, and just a mess of grief and you know, alcoholism and all sorts of things that come along with that. But, but um, Molly Shannon has this beautiful sense of wonder at the world and it makes this book just incredible to read. She also was clearly raised in church. And so the way that that sort of um, she talks about the character uh, who smells her a superstar character, yeah. Who smells? Who smells superstar. her hands? Smells her her armpits, and then smells it right. Yes. And she she talks about when she was doing the movie how the director kept trying to kind of make her, um, make her more subtle Uh and and less less and sort of make god jokes and molly Shannon was like no she's very faithful that's the thing about her is she's totally wild right and and she's also like a good christian catholic girl you know and so you have to hold both those things at the same time and i think like people who know suffering who live in that lens like it's just such a beautiful space to inhabit. I mean, I think about Molly Shannon every morning right now because she always talks about how she didn't ever have the experience of her mom beyond the age of four. So when she became a mother, I mean, she can't if you've heard her interviewed lately about this, she can't talk about the crying. It's like it was it's like such a gift, you know, and I totally get that. I totally jive with that. Um so, I mean, I, I don't mean to, like, direct us to another book because I, I love this piece. And I, um, I also love an adult talking about how important children's literature can be mm-hmm. um, and how healing it can be. Because it's funny, we can really, as parents, and I certainly have these nights where you just feel really trapped. You're like, oh, my God, are we going to have to read this stupid book about a kitten that found a feather boa in the garbage can and wore it around, <laughs> yes, we have to read that book all the time. It's so awful. Mm. Um can we read something beautiful? You know? And and the thing with children's literature is there's a lot of really beautiful options. Yeah. So KT
0: Camilla yeah. I think is at the top of the pile. Yeah. In fact. Mm. RJ, what are you thinking?
2: It just struck me that this is kind of the opposite of adulting, right? Oh. That adulting seems like so good. uh Shoving, pushing away, the wonder, pushing away the because you need to focus on being responsible, and and kind of making the right choices. And I feel I feel that tension within myself as we're we're writing that. Oftentimes it feels like the demands of being an adult in the world are actively at war with um, just play. We're talking about play, right? Which yeah. is something we've talked about a lot, and about how. Um, play is valuable in its own right, and yet it's not efficient or economical, or it doesn't get you anything. Mm-hmm. You know, but it, but it gets you everything. At the same time, it gets you everything, and that's where you connect to what 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 life is actually. It reminds me of of um, Soul, which for, somewhere out of the blue, you know that Pixar yeah, yeah. movie, yeah, yeah, Soul. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Marshall just all of a sudden is like, Dad, I want to watch that movie with the like black and white cat. I'm like, what? <laughs> He's like, the blue people and the black and I white cat. I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> what are you talking about? What do about? I
1: Google? I don't know. So oh, Seriously. Blue like, people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: We watched Soul three times in a week. Aww. And that's just 100% about what that movie is like, right? But the wonder of human existence, even if you never adult, even if you never <laughs> make it to be, um, I need to watch that about now 20 more times. To yeah. um, so watch Soul. Yeah. Go watch soul. I
0: think about a, a couple different things. I'm just I'm so grateful that Joey was able to ad, ad, admit that children's books um, ministered to him during that time. I, I find yeah. I found myself during the pandemic, and I was I talk about nostalgia, but one of the things I was doing was getting John Belair's books. If people, these Edward Gorey did these incredible covers for these this sort of gothic uh uh stories about a an a orphan kid and this professor and they'd go on adventures and and, and it was um I kept reading them and I, I read them with the kids and they were legitimately scary and yet there was always hope and in fact in, in these books it's usually some form of Catholicism figures in some sort of good versus evil and it reminded me a little bit of uh, going to speak about remember when I spoke about to Ash Wednesday to all those little kids oh, and yeah. <laughs> they were all steeped in death because every Disney Store every every kid's book, they deal with these heavy themes. It's like the adults in the room, they're like uh, you know, don't talk about that. We need another facelift? (laughs) Does anyone have $200,000 I could use? Because I need a facelift! (laughs) Um, And so I I think that that's beautiful, and I also love that uh, um, as far as a euphemism or a uh, definition for the Christian faith of synthesizing terror, with the wonder and the joy because it's what's what's yes. what, what what clearly comes across is one of the great themes of Kate DiCamillo's writing is abandonment like mm-hmm. adults abandoning children and that experience and that's terrifying that's scary that is like what that's the deepest wounds a person can experience and yet she says that is kind of like to to be in the 8-year-old's eyes you can feel the abandonment, but you then also see the terror and the the, and the, the adulting. Oftentimes, is like the 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 um, process of uh, you know erecting walls and defenses so that you don't ever feel anything. Um, and I also was thinking about Tom Holland's talk where he just says we totally take for granted the Christian heritage in the world. Jesus would say that, you know, whoever welcomes these, these children in my name welcomes me and come unto me, let, let the children come unto me. It's like he was, he was saying this in a world where children were completely devalued. And uh, yes. he was saying how even the, the idea that there's a divide between the sacred and the secular is a Christian idea. Like, people in India, Hindus wouldn't have recognized that as an idea. That was something that came in through Christianity. But um, there's all sorts of things we take for granted. And one of the greatest ones is the dignity given to children as having, um, you know, to becoming childlike is, 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 is actually a good thing and not a... Uh, because he would say the only powers that were known in the Roman world was was power. Um mm. that was the it. That was that was everything was about who had the power and children didn't have any power so they didn't matter. And Jesus reconfigures that in such a way that we've completely taken for granted. So when we say the we we care about the rights of the marginalized and the powerless and the children and the um you want to say uh, why like or where is that coming from? And and it can be is a straight line back to Jesus, Jesus. Christ. Um I think so. And one of the things that was a resounding theme of the conference this is what, what we'll close on is the theme of hope. And this is, um, hope in a weary world. It was one of the times, I mean, Sarah, you talked about it. Simeon talked about it. Aaron talked about it. Abso- Jason Michelli talked about it. Todd, everyone talked about it. And I thought it was such a, um, beautiful kind of Holy Spirit, um, directed thing, um, and it's also the note I'd like to leave us because we're going to go silent here for a few months. Um, but this, was, this, this kind of summed up some of what we were talking about. And it's an article that appeared on ABC Religion and Ethics, which I think is an Australian publication, by David Neuheiser. It's called An Uncertain Hope, Pandemic Life, and the Chance of Transformation. This is what he says. <clears throat> I understand hope to be a disciplined persistence that allows us to admit our vulnerability while pressing forward nonetheless. We cannot be so sure that our loves will endure, that our projects will succeed, or that we stand on the side of justice and truth. It is tempting to ignore these difficulties, but hope enables us instead to face them. Between false confidence and paralyzing despair, hope endures without assurance. As we have repeatedly seen, it's no good to pretend that things are better than they are. Such bluster is bound to shatter when faced with the complexity of lived experience at some level we all know that we're vulnerable which is why hope is such a powerful force in my view we need hope's bold humility to honestly acknowledge the challenges we face while mustering the imagination to address them because covid19 has been an exhausting ordeal what notice the word (laughs) simply to carry on living well has required all of us in one way or another to draw on hope's resilience At the same time, through hope, we can face suffering and uncertainty without being crushed by them. Rather than simply returning to the normal we knew before, hope would have us lean into the uncertainty of our situation. The ruptures caused by that pandemic have been painful, but they have also shown that the future is more open than it often seems. If COVID-19 can change the world so suddenly, this suggests that things can also change for the better, all in a flash.
1: That's good.
0: Where will we be at the end of the summer? I don't know.
2: Ooh, I
1: don't want to think about
2: that. I don't know if that's how I define hope. Sorry, this is what I—the th- only hope I have is that Jesus is Lord and God is in charge, and things are going to turn out the way that He wants them to, you know. And I'm just kind of doing the best I can here, but uh, such a normie. He because He's God, he, He's it's it. well with. It's well within His power to open doors and close doors, and and yeah. and redirect and uh, shut things down and raise things up and you know, like that I don't have any I don't have any hope in my ability to hope. Like if my hope is in my ability to hope, like forget it. My hope is only that at the end of the day and the end of the age, things will work out exactly the way that he wants them to and he is good. That's Mm. it. Like, you know? I mean, not I, I hear like, you I that's, that's
0: that's the hope of in a weary world. It's not hope that's hope it. in the weary world. It's hope sort of
2: and it's nothing we manufacture. It's not a state of mind. It's not uh, sort of willful ignorance or um, the power of positive thinking. No. It's, it's also like answered prayer. Mm-hmm. It's also looking back and being like, oh, maybe there's something to this. Mm. Maybe we're not alone. Maybe things have sort of sometimes turned out better than I could have ever possibly imagined. Not always, but a lot of the times. um,
0: Sarah, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm about to. um, In your talk, you, you spoke about the devastating reality of what you've suffered, but you did it in such a way to say that the suffering actually does produce hope.
1: I mean, it's in the Bible, but yeah. <laughs> but you're, mean, it's
0: not just—it's not just in the Bible. It also happens. No, to... No,
1: I don't say things just because they're in the Bible. <laughs> um, no, I mean it's—it's it's Romans five, um, and it's—it's it's so funny. I don't know that I really said this, but you know, unlike my brother Rudger John, um, I don't—that's R.J. I—I uh, I don't have whole passages of Scripture memorized. I've never been a person that's been able to do that, but that passage about suffering locked into my brain at some point years ago and I can't quote it word for word but I can tell you that it's like the the suffering leads to um oh gosh now I'm on the spot suffering leads to 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 perseverance perseverance character character hope and uh, You know, for me, I think about perseverance and when I think about hopefulness Mm. and I think about, you know, something I said at the conference and I really mean this about y'all is like I was able to persevere only because for a long time I couldn't persevere at all. And people stepped into that gap and persevered on my behalf. People like both of you. And I think that that is a huge reason why I have hope now. Right, um, and and the other thing is like all those things. It's kind of like this 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 Kate DeMillo thing, and um, uh, even the neuroscience thing. It's like all these things can be true at once, right? We don't move from perseverance to to we don't leave suffering, right? Yeah. Like, but all those things on this side can be true at once, and and that that perhaps is the Christian life. Hmm at least earth side
0: synthesizing rather than um uh progressing through uh yeah
1: it's cross-shaped, baby it's not a we're not on a some sort of a linear plan one of there's an
0: aa slogan which i've kind of clung to at times in my life where he says just uh stay on the bus and the scenery will change
1: (laughs) Like, <laughs> oh my gosh that's so good. um it's so good i mean that means well, it could it just, change it, for the it, worse
0: but it, it it will change like that can be certain that we're, we're, what's yeah. certain is the uncertainty as it, as it were um and and what can change for the for the bad can change for the good and and because i believe in in god I, you know that a higher power is not just um existent but um or benign but uh, benevolent uh
2: and and active. active benevolent and active there
0: I cannot see it now maybe you know but the stay on the bus the scenery sceneries may change it will change any final words for our listeners before we sign off for a little
2: bit I pray and hope everyone has a restful summer a joyful and restful summer and that we all get a chance to recover from what we've collectively, endured for the last two and a half years because it's been you think about all the stuff that's happened it has been a crazy time on a lot Mm. of levels so that's my prayer for myself and for you guys and for everyone listening
1: well i don't think that's gonna happen but um (laughs) i think it's a nice thought (laughs) wow all right well um i think it's a good prayer i just i just feel like it you know the thing about hope to me is like you don't truly know hope until you know how powerless you are, and I think we're so powerless over the way anything turns out. And I, I I think I didn't realize that until I lost so much, and um and I didn't realize that until you know I became an adult and the way the plans I thought that I was gonna have laid out didn't work out. Mm. I don't know. I just, I just think for me, I think that's where where hope lives is us knowing. We just have no control over anything.
0: Well, that is a... Good
1: luck out there this summer, folks.
0: Why don't I I say a prayer before we actually end? How about that? Uh, Lord God, we lift up the summer to you. Lord, we ask uh, for your blessing, for your grace to be poured out among us in the midst of uncertainty. Give us hope where we lack it. And above all, Lord, um, give us the gift of faith that uh, you are working and active and uh, good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Amen. Amen. Love y'all.
2: Bye, you guys. Have a nice summer. Bye.
1: Bye. Sometimes I wonder if I should be medicated If I would feel better just slightly sedated
0: Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.emberd.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at infombird.com. Audio production for the mocking cast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.